0: it a moment maybe it might need to be moved manually forward by there you go can anyone recognize this person who is it it is muhammad ali that's right famous boxer famous not just for his boxing feats but also for his showmanship that went along with his whole boxing persona a showmanship that led to several memorable quotes right float like a butterfly sting like a bee Perhaps his most famous quote, which is probably more of a boast, is, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And you know what? Muhammad Ali, he proved that. He proved that he was the greatest, the most dominant heavyweight boxer of his generation. Just ask George Foreman, who famously, memorably was beaten by him in the rumble in the jungle in Zaire, And so we might say that Muhammad Ali's vision for life was to be the greatest boxer of all time. And he believed that, he truly believed that deep down. That is how he saw himself. He pursued that relentlessly. Everything else in life was there to serve that ambition, to serve that vision for life. A vision of success, a vision of adulation, a vision of glory. And I think the same can be said of any athlete, professional athlete or high-performing person, can't they be? That sort of single-minded pursuit of achievement and success and glory. Now, you may never aspire to that level of achievement or acclaim, but I think the fact is everyone, every one of us has a, a certain vision for life, how we think our lives should look. What you think your life should look like and i think for many people in the world for everyone really while we may not frame it quite as muhammad ali did maybe a bit more modestly our default visions for life are similarly inherently self-oriented maybe your particular vision for life is the area of relationships you envision finding the right life partner and having kids You've got a vision of what that looks like. Maybe it's a vision for work, the work that you do, finding a successful job, one that's fulfilling and one that's enjoyable, one that pays well. Maybe it's in your lifestyle. You envision owning your own home or renovating your home so it's just, just right for you. Maybe it's having experiences traveling the world or just, having, just attaining a particular level of comfort nothing too ambitious. I think for those of us here this morning at a church, a Christian church, the question for us is, how does all that gel with the life of Christian discipleship? What sort of vision for life should the Christian believer have? Is it possible to have the life I just described, or at least parts of it, and just add Jesus in? To have all those things and have jesus yes he's important but he's part of that life is that when you really dig deep down deep is that your ideal vision of the christian life i think that that is a vision of the christian life that many of us here in sydney find appealing we have all those things all those visions and jesus is a part of that but he's a part of it but what if that's not quite the vision for life of the Bible? As Mike said at the beginning of the service, as many of you know, we're continuing our way through the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. And in the passage before us, Paul, he casts a particular vision for life, doesn't he? One that pushes back against what we might call the Muhammad Ali vision for life. The vision for life that makes us and our desires and our ambitions the center of everything. And Paul's point is that the Christian life is inherently and necessarily Not like that. It can't operate that way. How can it? How can it? If God is real and you come to that realization and you submit yourself to His Lordship as the Creator and Sustainer of all as well as your personal Savior, then you are by extension saying that you are no longer the most significant reality in your life. God is. He has to be. And so the biblical vision for life reorients human ambition, human desire, human confidence, human glory, instead of us and our desires and our ambitions being at the centre of everything, God and His desires and His ambitions are at the centre of everything. And I think we listen to that and we go, yeah, yeah, I know that. I do believe that. But I think what this means in real terms is that Christian living becomes, becomes synonymous with Christian ministry. That is... To be a Christian believer is to be a Christian minister. To be a Christian believer is to be a Christian minister. You see that right in the middle of the passage, don't you? Paul says in chapter 3, verse 6, He has made us to be ministers. He's made us to be ministers. And elsewhere in the passage, he speaks at length about our ministry. He's using this inclusive language. And I think for most of us here, many of us, it's tempting to think that Paul is just speaking about Professional ministers, vocational ministers, people like Mike and me. What we do, you know, those who do it for a living, as it were. And Paul is speaking to those people. He is speaking about that sort of ministry. Paul himself was an apostle, full-time, given over to being a, a, a church leader. But Paul is also speaking to all Christians. That's partly why he keeps using, speaking to the whole Corinthian church, this we language. All Christian believers should have this vision for life because all Christians, by virtue of their faith in Christ, have had the orientation of their lives shifted from themselves to God. All believers have. And now, before alarm bells go off, Paul isn't saying that everyone here who's a Christian believer needs to stop life and go and enroll at Moore College or SMBC or Youth Works College. He's not saying that, but what Paul is saying is that when you're captured by the truth of who God is and what glorious thing He has done for us and for all of existence, when you're captured by that truth, then everything you do and say, everything about your life will inherently point people to God. In other words, your life is ministry, a service to God for the eternal benefit of others. That is the point of Paul's captivity illustration that he kind of kicks off this section with in verse 14 of chapter 2. But thanks be to God, he writes, who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. He's referring to the practice that victorious Roman generals would have of leading a procession through the streets of Rome. After war, a procession you know, displaying the spoils and the captives of war. And incense would be burned and the aroma would waft over everyone who was participating and everyone who interacted with that procession. And Paul is saying that as a captive of God, like the chief captive, Christ himself, as a captive of God, he goes where God leads, doing God's will. In a sense, he doesn't have a choice. And as He does so, He's on display, spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place, in everything He does. A bit like what Steve prayed just earlier, praying that we would all glorify God and serve Him and serve others. That's just part of who we are and what we do. And this this God-centeredness, you know, it comes, as you can see there, with a not insignificant degree of suffering and humiliation to a world that naturally views the person of God with hostility and rejection and scorn. And so while to some our ministry of sharing the good news of Jesus is an aroma of life, as Paul puts it, to others we will be an aroma of death. Or as one translation puts it, the stench of death. Ever encountered anything that's died like a mouse behind the skirting board that you've uncovered? In my previous work for QuizWorks, I used to travel all the way around the country, often would be driving in rural areas, and particularly outback areas. Ever driven along in the summer on a 45-degree day in the outback and encountered roadkill? You can smell it, like, literally kilometres away if you're downwind and approaching it. You've got your air conditioning on, you know, it comes in through the car, and it just gets more and more intense. And then as you pass the carcass it takes another kilometer or so before the smell really goes away stench of death right it's horrible it's overwhelming paul is saying that there will be people who won't want to hear it and boy will they let you know it will be the stench of death to them now all that might make you freak out a bit right and i think that's okay me a minister and particularly this picture that paul's painting if this is what living a life of ministry looks like that's pretty daunting the prospect of rejection that's hard to embrace but i think what's also daunting in here in the vision that paul casts i think it's also daunting because i suspect that most of us even the rejection and the, and the potential hostility thing aside most of us just feel massively underqualified for that there's a reason why people who go into vocational ministry go to college for three or four years and do ongoing training after all the stakes are high life and death eternal life eternal death and there is a place for that for feeling that way as paul himself asked to see there in verse 16 of chapter 2 who is competent for this who is competent to do this and that feeling is not helped by the fact that paul sees as mike drew attention to as packer reflected on in his vi- in his video he sees weakness as a central characteristic of the Christian life, of Christian ministry. How does that equip us for ministry? Well, it equips us for ministry in the best possible way. It equips us for life in the best possible way because it means we can't be self-reliant. When you're strong in some area, you're inherently rely on yourself. Instead, we're utterly dependent on God. And if we see all of life as ministry... And we're utterly dependent on God, not just in the things that we do when we turn up to church and the activities and the programs, in everything, every conversation we have with someone. And it means that our competence for ministry isn't found in the training and the skills we have. It isn't found fundamentally in our credentials. It's found in God, as Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 3. It's not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves but our competence is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. And on one level, you know, that's a cut to the heart, to our sense of pride, to our sense of autonomy. We like to be able to rely on ourselves, but actually it's wonderfully freeing. I think it comes back to motivation and the vision for life that fuels it. If your motivation is human glory and human comfort, then it's human glory and human comfort you'll get. You'll rely on, as Paul puts it, letters of recommendation from one person to another. You'll rely on avoiding hostility and pushback at all costs. But if your motivation is to glorify God, then it's God's commendation you'll get. You'll get it in the form of, of gospel fruit, Verse 2 of chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. It's clear that you are Christ's letter, produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. That's why Paul has confidence as an apostle. That's why he has confidence as a Christian. As someone representing God to an unbelieving world, because he knows he's not operating in his own power. He is... Operating by the power of the Holy Spirit, that means he's operating by the power of God himself. That God is choosing to work through someone as weak as him to achieve great things for his kingdom. And that's why we can have confidence too. Every one of us here who trust in the Lord. It doesn't rely on us doing and saying everything right and upskilling ourselves perfectly. Yes, by our lives we'll represent the gospel, that's not something to be taken lightly... But our worth and our legitimacy, it isn't based on on what we bring to the table. It's based on what Christ has already brought to the table on our behalf. And as this works itself out in our lives, we, we find ourselves being used by God for two things primarily, which is kind of what the second half of the passage occupies itself with. Two things that we get to do. We get to reflect God's glory. We get to reflect God's glory and we get to bring God's enlightenment. We get to reflect God's glory, and we get to bring God's enlightenment. That is a privilege of Christian ministry, of Christian living. First of all, we reflect God's glory. From verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul, you'll note there, starts speaking of a new covenant, which is of the Spirit, and so which truly produces life. What he's doing there is comparing the old covenant, the old promise, the old relationship that God entered into with His people, as expressed in the letter and the demands of the Jewish law, he's contrasting that with the new covenant, which is expressed in the saving work of Christ and the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point is that both, both of these are expressions of God's glory. His character, His greatness, His utter holiness, both are. But one allows us direct access to God's glory, and one doesn't. To drive home this point Paul refers to when the law was first given to Moses and how Moses' face shone with God's glory such that the sons of Israel, that is, ordinary human beings, could not look upon it. They couldn't handle God's glory, even reflected off the face of another human being. And so Moses had to veil his face. He had to put up a physical barrier, even as that glory was fading, lest God's people look directly at it and be blinded. I think the experience of this must be a bit like when you've spent some time in a dimly lit room on a blindingly sunny day and then you step outside and you just you can't see a thing. And the greater the contrast, the greater the blindness. You need some sort of veil. You need sunglasses or something in between you and the brilliance of that light. And so that's one of the limitations of the old covenant glory of God was veiled, necessarily. It can only be accessed through laws and things like that. But it also had other limitations. Because Paul rightly describes it here as a ministry of condemnation and a letter which kills, he describes it that way because that's all the law could ultimately do, right? It was the law that at its heart had to be obeyed. And only by being obeyed could could its blessings be be fully received as blessings of life. And that's something that no sinful human, that is, no ordinary human, any of us, could actually achieve. By contrast, Paul says, everything that was promised in the Old Covenant, but which couldn't be achieved by it, is realized and is achieved in the New Covenant. The obedience that we couldn't achieve was achieved by the perfect life of Jesus. And the condemnation for our disobedience was paid for by His death on the cross. And so now, we can have righteousness before God instead of condemnation. We can have eternal life instead of eternal death. And we can have the genuine presence of God in human experience, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because of this, Paul says, in 3 verse 18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. I think what Paul's describing there is a bit like, you know, when you have something reflective, a shiny surface, maybe your phone or something like that, and there's a beam of light coming in, you catch that beam and you reflect it onto something else. Paul's saying that is what we are like. As believers, as those who are ministering him to the world, we are reflecting God's glory. What an immense privilege. As we share this great unveiled hope with the world, we in effect reflect God's glory, a glory that's become for humans finally accessible and personal and lasting. How much more glorious is that, Paul is saying, than what, what, what happened before? So That's the first thing that we get to do. We reflect God's glory as we live out our lives, ministering to the world around us. The second thing we do is we bring God's enlightenment. In the last part of the passage, Paul turns the veil image around and he applies it to people's response to the Gospel. First and foremost, as you may have suspected, Paul has in view the Jewish people. They had the best access to God's glory, the first access from a human perspective as a people. Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 14, But their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's a sobering thing to hear. We reflected on this in our series that we've just completed in John's Gospel. One of the bitter ironies that John brings out in his Gospel is that Jesus came not just as a man to human beings, but a Jewish man to Jewish people. Those who should have recognized him, who should have recognized by what he did, not only was he their creator, but particularly that he was their promised Messiah and Saviour. And what did they do? They rejected him. This is especially evident in the account, if you remember it, of Jesus healing the blind man. After seeing Jesus do what only God could do, opening the sight of a man, the Jewish leaders, they still refused to accept that Jesus was from God. It was as though in the same, or I guess in the opposite way, that a physical veil had been lifted from the eye of the blind man, a spiritual veil had been placed over their eyes, had been placed over their hearts. And that's largely been the Jewish response to this day. But of course, it isn't just the Jewish people whose hearts, as it were, are veiled. It's all who hear the Gospel and who dismiss it. Those, Paul writes here, who are perishing. Those for whom the message of Jesus and the person proclaiming it are the stench of death. Whatever you think of Israel Falau's Instagram post and the wisdom around what he shared and how he went about sharing it, he was... Communicating what the Bible says about the character of God, it reflects about his vision for human morality and for human relationship with him. And yet, to most who saw that post, it was nothing other than the stench of death. Or think of Compassion, the aid organization that we partner with. Paul Beeston kicked off our series a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians. You may remember him. Reminding us that compassion has been kicked out of the nation of in India by its government. For helping people? Is that why they got kicked out? No. For helping people in the name of Jesus. Because compassion are unashamedly a Christian organization. Or well, think of anyone that you have shared the gospel with and who's rejected it. Maybe it's a family member or a close friend. Maybe it's a stranger in the street. Either way, stench of death, right? In their case, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded their minds, specifically so that the glory of Christ, that is the glory of God, does not shine forth. As those bringing this message, as those living this message, that's not easy for us to hear. I'm not pretending that it is. Yet this isn't something we should despair over. Why not? Because it's not up to us to change their hearts, to lift the veil. It's a work solely of God when anyone turns back to Him. It's a mercy in every sense of the word. And people do turn back to God. What does He say? Paul, in verse 16 of chapter 3, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's just removed. They can see properly. That's the story of every Christian believer here in this room. It's the story of a heart unveiled the story of every Christian believer in the world. And that means that no matter how many people reject our message, reject us, maybe, we don't have to lose heart. Our job is simply, as verse 18 says, to show them in word and deed our unveiled faces, the lives of those already transformed by God. So what's your vision for life? Many centuries ago, what's known as the Westminster Catechism was penned. It's a a set of beliefs framed in a series of questions and answers regarding what's in the Bible and what Christians believe. And the very first question is couched somewhat in vision for life terms. It asks, what is the chief end of man? That is, what's the purpose people were created to fill? And the answer goes, to glorify God. And enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. I don't know if you can or if you're prepared to articulate the real vision for your life. There is a place for all the things that we talked about earlier, for enjoying God's creation as He has given it to us, and for pursuing those things. But they should not fill our vision. By no means. I'd like to think that if you're a Christian believer, your vision for life does resemble in some way, shape or form the vision that Paul casts here. That instead of you and your desires and your glory being at the centre of everything, God and His desires and His glory are at the centre of everything. And the rest will follow. What does God desire? To enlighten those He has made to the saving work of Jesus on their behalf and so to bring them into the wondrous and lasting experience of His glory. And you and I have the great privilege of revealing that glory, of reflecting it, and then one day, enjoying it forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You have Reveal Yourself to us. We thank You that You unveil human hearts to the truth of who You are and You turn us in repentance back to You. Pray for all of us in this room that You may encourage us in the ministry that is our lives, to our friends, to our families, to strangers. May we have confidence in the work that You are doing in and through our weakness. May we look to the cross, the ultimate sign of human weakness, yet the ultimate power of you to save. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.